I was a little curious to see what happened when it got to zero and implosions or exodus or whatever that is. But I'm, it is good to be here this morning amidst family. And I don't mean just my immediate family. And I don't even admit that I'm related to some of them. So, but I'm good to be here again. Um, yeah, Castle Oaks is home in many ways. So it's been good to be home and, and see some of your faces again. Um, even people like Rick, it's even good to see him again. As I was walking by him, he goes, are you going to preach from the Old Testament again? I'm like, yeah. And then he, he pointed out there's a guy named Jesus in the New Testament. That was new to me, so I'm looking forward to that. It is good to be here, and uh, let, let's just get, let's just call the elephant in the room what it is. Let's point it out right away. I am just as surprised that I've been allowed back as you are, so... I am just as surprised. And so I'm going to start out non-controversially, okay? I'm going to start out non-controversially. I'm not going to end that way, let's be honest, but I'm going to start non-controversially. How many of you keep or tend a garden somewhere, you know, on a regular basis? You are gardeners. Okay, those of you that don't garden, look around. These are suspicious people. <laughs> keep an eye on them. Gardening, yeah, I mean, how many of you do flower gardens? How many of you do vegetable gardens? How many of you do medicinal gardens? Yeah. Yeah. No hands there. And some of you are lying. Growing up in Chicago, my father kept a vegetable garden. Um, yeah, in Chicago, a vegetable garden. And uh, he, he was a roofer, and, uh, but he liked to talk all the time about how he tended garden. He liked tending garden. Our family loves to tend garden. In fact, he would make it look really idyllic, like we would all go out to our garden together as a family and tend the garden together. Now, my dad did tend. Um, he didn't tend a garden, though. He did tend. <laughs> and uh, while he was tending, we were gardening or or pulling weeds and putting them in a pile, today what we would call child labor. So that was what was going on then. Um, and, but, we, but he would love the idea of tending, and it looked more like this. Uh, 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 and, and again, I know there are those of you that garden say it's therapeutic. I've heard that said about gardening. Now, it's not therapeutic for me, unless pulling weeds, putting them in a pile, and taking them to the garbage is therapeutic, in which case I've had hundreds of sessions of therapy growing up. But right now, I don't like gardening for that reason. Now, in fact, my wife doesn't like gardening. In fact, you could say the seeds of love fell on the soil of our mutual disdain for gardening. That's how we found one another. For me, we've made our peace, Cheryl and I, of the life cycle of plants. We get that there are those that take seeds, plant them, lovingly cultivate them, making them into beautiful gardens. And there are those on the end of the plant life cycle that make them comfortable before they die. And that is where Cheryl and I fit. We are plant hospice care, making plants feel better as they take their last breath. That is our unique role. Now, don't get me wrong. We love gardens. We do. We love gardens. I don't care what they are. Vegetable gardens. I don't care if they're flower gardens, botanical gardens, you and your medicinal garden. We, I don't care what gardens they are. We love any garden that is tended by other people for our benefit. That is the kind of garden we like. Now, those of you that know me, again, I'm surprised you're here, but those of you that do know me um, know that I like to sort of set, the way I, I do these lessons, I set a, a, a good time doing a context. 
a groundwork, some background, so that when we come to the passage, you'll see it in a fresh and new way. And so for me, I, want to, I spend a fair amount of time doing that. So this morning, to set expectations, there's going to be three movements to this lesson. The first one will be the context. We're going to talk about the Jewishness of the Gospels and the right question to ask. We're going to talk about the, first, the Jewish first century concept of shalom and the afterlife. That's the first movement. That second movement, then, we're going to take into the passage. We're going to look at John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18, a very familiar story to you that we usually do at Easter, but I want to do now. And then finally, we'll go to what I call the uncomfortable implications, and that's where things go off the rails. So, that's the plan for this morning. Are you with me on that so far? This is where you nod, because there's going to be some interaction here, and I do need interaction. It's a long story. So, the Jewishness of the Gospels. Let's start there. The Gospels, you do know, were written by Jews, for Jews, thinking Jewishly about all things. You do understand that, right? Let me say that again. The Gospels, the Bible, was written by Jews, for Jews, thinking Jewishly about everything. That is how the Scriptures were written. But we've come to read the Gospel, we've come to read the Bible in a way that is anything but Jewishly. And that causes confusion. It, it, makes, it makes it seem things are off when we try to make the Bible do things it wasn't intended to do, or we try to read it in a way it was not intended to read. The best thing I can think of is, it's like um, trying to, picture using poetry to write a car owner's manual. All right? So you're driving along, and you see uh, the, the indicator light comes on, and so you pull out your, your, your owner's manual to see what the light means, and you read this. When day comes, we ask ourselves, where can we find light in this never-ending shade? The loss we carry, a sea we must wave. We've braved the belly of the beast. We've learned that quiet is it always peace. Well, it's obviously talking about the headlamps. I mean, it talks about light, so it's, it's the light. In the, well, but the belly of the beast is definitely the tranny, definitely the transmission. This is the problem. When you don't think about it, when you think about it and read the scriptures in a way it's not intended to read, you get poetry for an owner's manual on your car. And nothing makes sense, and it's open to interpretation, and our interpretations oftentimes are shallow at best and actually contrary to Jesus at worst. That's the truth of it. I'd like to commend the book Liberating the Gospels, Reading the Bible with Jewish Eyes by John Shelby Sprong, who makes a compelling case that in the early years of the Christian church, in the Western world, a wretched spirit of anti-Jewish hatred was so pervasive that the very idea that the Gospels were the products of Jewish authors and that they represented a Jewish gift to the world would have seemed both incomprehensible and even revolting. His point is over the centuries, there has been a subconscious attempt, if not outright attempt, to strip the Jewishness out of the Gospels, out of the Bible by the Western church. And as a result, a number of our current theological positions seek to bend the collective spirit and sacred story of God at work to fit our own preferred thoughts and actions. So this morning, this is my challenge to you as we unpack this in the context portion, the first movement. Prove to the world today how open-minded you are. Commit to wade through the uncomfortable dissonance that actual real growth requires consciously endeavor to hear and reflect Jewishly on the scripture we're going to read. And in doing so, the first question is this. A Jew would ask any passage of scripture, what 
does it mean? You understand that the Gospels are written in what's called a Midrashic style. A Midrashic style. What that means is it is not concerned with historical accuracy. Now, you understand where that comes into a problem for us because we are obsessed with, quote, accuracy, logic, analysis. Right away, we're on a conflict with the scriptures because it's not written to do that. It's written to try to tell the story of a sacred story of God at work with Israel. And what Jews try to do is they try to say, this is what God did in the past. This is what I'm experiencing now. How does this now relate to the past and help me understand it? That's what it's concerned about. It doesn't ask, did it really happen? Which is, we get obsessed with. In the beginning, there was morning and evening, the first day. Was that 24 little hours? Or was that, do they use military time? That's where we go. Jews don't care. In the beginning, God, done. He spoke, there was light, there was evening. Who cares about the details? So, the first thing is, you've got to remember it is Midrashic in style. It's meant to tell a story. It's meant to leak past experience to present experiences of God. It is focused on meaning and understanding God's intent, not with historical accuracy. And if you are worried about historical accuracy, you are not thinking Jewishly about the scriptures right off the bat. So, what are some of the elements of that sacred Jewish history that come into play in the Gospels? Well, the Gospels relate that some of Jesus' most defining moments were experienced in the various settings of gardens. You know this, right, from the Gospels. I mean, you can, it's not hard to imagine in the blazing sun of Israel, walking with his disciples and people that gathered along the way, stopping in gardens to teach, have a meal together, laughing, enjoying time together. That's gardens have that idyllic kind of quality in the scriptures. It is also in gardens where Jesus prayed and sweated blood. It's also in gardens where Jesus was arrested after being betrayed by one of his own disciples. It's also in gardens where Jesus' body was interred. For Jesus and his disciples, gardens were a place where peace and joy commingled with betrayal and death. Now, there is another place in Scripture where divinity conflicted with humanity, where peace and joy commingled with betrayal and death in a garden. Do you know where that is? This is the interactive portion of my sermon. Where is it? The Garden of Eden. Right off the bat, right off the bat, joy and peace commingle with death and betrayal. It is in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. At that brief point in time when all creation existed as God intended to be, when Jews called Shalom, when God looked over all he had made and saw that everything he made, every single thing he made was very good. Very good. I can't overstate this next point enough. A thorough understanding of Shalom is a critical piece to a healthy faith identity for a Jew. Let me say that again. A thorough understanding of shalom, of, of, of what the garden was like, is critical to a healthy identity for a Jew. Even though most versions of the Bible translate shalom or translate that as the word peace, the actual meaning is a lot more encompassing. Author Cornelius Plantinga Jr., in his book entitled Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, brings us closer to the idea of shalom when he says, shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. Universal flourishing wholeness. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully, fruitfully employed. In short, the Garden of Eden means shalom, 
the way God intended it to be. The flourishing of all human life, that means equity and justice. The flourishing of creation in all aspects of the world, that means actual stewardship of what we have now. Men and women living rightly together. That means non-misogynistic treatment of women. God and humanity living rightly together. Living without fear, living without shame. In short, shalom means, may it all be as God always intended it to be. All of it, every single piece of it. May it be the way God intended it to be. Garden of Eden, the Garden of Eden is a symbol what God intended all creation to be. It's not a stretch then that this imagery simmers beneath the surface and psyche of every devout first century Jew, especially when they're standing in a garden. All these images, all these meanings are simmering right below the surface because they were all Jews talking about a Jewish God interacting with a Jewish history unfolding. Now hold that thought for a moment. Take that, put it on a shelf. I'm going to come back to it. Did you know that Jewish wisdom and theology offer no definitive answer regarding the afterlife? What we call heaven. We've got a lot of thoughts about what heaven is and we've got it prescripted out and we've got it pretty well defined in our minds. In fact, if I talk to each one of you, you could give me a sense of where this other place of heaven is and what it's going to look like. Jews don't have anything like that. They don't have anything like that. And they didn't have anything like that when they were writing the Gospels. So keep that in mind. There are some key aspects that are endemic to Jewish thinking about the afterlife, though. And I'm indebted to, and I would say the writers of the Gospels were well aware of these thoughts when they wrote it. And I'm indebted to Rabbi Evan Mofik, he's a Reformed rabbi, for giving these ins insights into Jewish afterlife, what they think about afterlife. One aspect of the afterlife is this. Um, do you know that... There was, you guys know the story of Noah, right? Flood, he killed everybody. And then afterwards, to say he wouldn't do it again, he made a covenant with Abraham. And what did he use to show the covenant? A rainbow. He made a covenant with all humanity. And then Jews say three chapters later, he made a another, another covenant uniquely ours. The, the covenant of Abraham. Remember when he took Abraham out and he said, look at the stars. These are the number of descendants. I make a covenant with you. And so because of these two covenants, because these two, these two covenants encompass all people, the afterlife to Jewish thinking is not a gated community. And they hold the righteous of anyone of any faith has a place based on one's godly actions, not specific articulated doctrines or beliefs. In short, they know it's not their job to determine who's in and who's out of whatever God decides afterlife looks like. It's not their job and they don't spend any time doing it. Now, I can feel that's, that's making some of you uncomfortable already, and I'm okay with that. In fact, I kind of enjoy it, if I'm really honest. I'm all right with that, because that is good discomfort. That is the discomfort of true growth, so don't run from that discomfort. By the way, when it comes to hell, they have no concept of hell. The closest, we've got it well defined out, right? You know, fire, weeping, gnashing of teeth, we got it all well. They don't. They just basically say, look, hell for us is an apostate, someone who says, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in faith, and I have no morality. They go, you've brought hell to yourself and those around you. 
And they say that's what Sheol is in the, in the Old Testament imagery, the pit. The pit is where God willingly withholds his presence. And they can't think of anything more hellish than not acknowledging God. So for them, hell happens every day. Every day, everywhere, hell happens by choice, by human choice. Now, the third aspect, and this is the most important for our purposes today, is this. When the Talmud, which is the writings of all the Jewish rabbis of the first century and are gathered together in a book called the Talmud, speak of olam chaba, the coming world, in connection with the afterlife, it is often used with the term gan eden, the Garden of Eden. And they use these terms interchangeably. The coming world and the Garden of Eden can mean the same thing. The rabbis conceive that the afterlife is somehow a return to the Garden of Eden before the fall, to shalom, to obam chaba, olam chaba, gan eden, the same thing. Shalom will be restored the way God always intended it to be. Herein ends the first movement. You with me so far? You've got to hold all that stuff together now. All right? Afterlife, heaven, Jewish thinking, what does it mean? You, you holding all that together? Garden imagery, joy and peace commingling with death and betrayal. You've got to hold all that together when you come to the text. Because then you would be close to starting to read it as a Jew would. So remember, shalom means the way God always intended it to be and the coming world Obam, Olam Chaba, means Garden of Eden, and they can mean the same thing. So the second movement that we're going to do is let's take a look at the passage. Now, when we come to the passage, it's a very, it's one we know from Easter season, it's quite familiar. When we join Mary in chapter 20, Jesus has been buried, the, the stone's been rolled away. She sees, goes, runs and gets the disciples. They come in, they check it out, they leave, and she stays. And that's where we pick up the passage. The passage next indicates that Mary was standing outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she stood and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied. And I don't know where they put him. Now Mary's casual demeanor toward the two angels indicate that she doesn't really know what's quite going on here. And that theme of not recognizing what's going on continues when, she, as she turned to leave, saw someone standing there, and it was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. I, I love this part, because this is where the irony starts to kick in. Mary doesn't recognize being in the garden with the gardener who started it all. Are you catching what I'm saying here? Mary doesn't realize that she's in the garden with the gardener who set this all in motion. Let me ask you, who's the author of this gospel that we're reading right now? Who? This is where you interact again. John, all right, John. Now, how did John start this gospel? It's a very famous Anybody remember? In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was God, with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought life to everyone. In other words, 
Mary fails to recognize the original gardener. She's in a garden with God who planted and cultivated all life into being, and she fails to recognize that the embodiment of shalom, the way God intended it to be, is standing right next to her. She misses it all. Now we're going to jump to verse 19 as we continue. And now you've got to remember the Midrashic style of a Jewish teller of the sacred story of Israel. It's not concerned with historical accuracy because it's more concerned with what does it mean and what is God's intent. And I want you to note as well, before we go to the passages, when the passage uses the word peace that we got from Shalom, I've inserted, may it all be as God always intended because that's what that word means. So I've inserted it in there so you can catch how this, how this rhythm hits a Jew when Jesus speaks. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly Jesus was standing there among them. May it all be as God always intended with you, he said. Jesus' first words to the disciples upon his resurrection, the one who existed in the beginning and who gave life to all creation says, may it be with you as God always intended to be with everything, like it was before the fall. Now think Jewishly. The disciples were in hiding, wrestling with the reality that they had been wrong, that they had backed a fraud, and their life was caving in on them. Their lives had descended into emptiness, chaos, darkness, fear. All of that is caving in on them. Now, can you think of another time? Oh, by the way, I want to go here too. He spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. They were filled with joy, and when he saw them... He said, may it all be as God always intended. As the Father sent me, so I send you. With that background, can you think of another time in Scripture where darkness prevails, chaos reigns, and there's nothing but emptiness? Anyone? Seriously? When in doubt, go to the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. In the midst of this moment, God makes the connection to the beginning and to Jesus. Do do you hear it in these words? Olam Chaba, the coming world. Then Jesus does something else that is quite unique, and I would suggest for a devout first century Jew, seals the connection as seals the connection of the timelessness of the beginning when God created it and Jesus. He seals the deal with this. Do you remember what he says? Then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Do you know of another time when God breathes into something and life comes to be? Again? Genesis. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust to the ground. He breathed the breath of life in them into the man's nostrils and the man became a living person. The parallels would not have been lost on the disciples. They would not have been lost on the disciples, those two things holding together. And they should not be lost on us today. God breathes, Jesus breathes. God creates, Jesus recreates. Hope in the midst of chaos and void. Garden of Eden, Olam Chaba, the coming world. And do you think it's just a happy coincidence that the writer of this gospel, John, is the same John who wrote the book of Revelation, and in Revelation he writes, and the one sitting on the throne, look, I am making everything new. And he said to me, write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. Do you think it's a mistake that John is writing that at the end, saying, by the way, everything's being restored. 
everything is being restored. What do you think this would mean to a first century Jew? Think Jewishly. Think midrashically. Like God in the beginning, Jesus is creating and recreating. Like God in the beginning, Jesus is speaking order out of chaos. Like God in the beginning, Jesus is breathing into humanity. So it is not surprising at all that John in the same gospel wrote, for God so loved the world, the whole world, all of it, all of it. He gave his one and only son so that anyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So let's ask the right question about today's passage, shall we? Let's be courageous enough to ask, what does it mean? Compelling ourselves to think more like a first century Jew, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, while keeping in mind first century Jewish concept of shalom in the afterlife and the Jewishness of the Gospels. And this takes us to the third movement. And for many of you, an end in sight. The uncomfortable Liberating implications. What does it mean? That's the right question to ask because that's what a Jew would have asked. What is meant by all of this? Could it mean, could it mean that God is restoring his creation, the world, the whole world to the way it was intended to be? Let me press you further. Let that sink in for a moment. Because for some of you, this is going to be a new concept that you're going to try to wrap your head around. And that's not going to be comfortable. For some of you, there's going to be a visceral reaction. No, you're a heretic. And I would say, not the first time I've been called that. But for some of you, this is going to be the most liberating and hopeful thing you've heard in years. I know for some, this is not what you want to hear. But let this sink in for a moment. Could the hard truth be that Jesus is about more than just saving the faithful few who's, who, wink and nod, think and look like me. Could it be, let that sink in for a moment, given what you know now, isn't it reasonable to deduce that this could have been the understanding of a first century Jewish disciple about Jesus? Be more reflective of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how they would have understood Jesus? And if so, if God is restoring all of it, all of the world, all of it, how different would we engage our world today, right now, if we believe that heaven is not some otherworldly place which the faithful few will be transported to, but rather that God is actually working right now, right here to restore Garden of Eden, Olam Chaba, right here now. And nobody's moving ahead. And that means you're uncomfortable. And I'm doing my job. Let that sink in for a moment. Because my hunch is that you will not like the implications. Again, for some of you, you will not like this. For some of you, you're going, oh, preach it, brother. And for others, going, I wonder when the patio opens at the union. Yeah, I lived here. I know what you're thinking. Because... If God truly is restoring the world, all of it, olam chaba, then we'd have to reject the idea that this world is just a slow, dilapidating rental that we're temporarily using. We would have to reject that. And let's be honest, we know that this world's not my home mentality encourages a deadly and dangerous indifference to the here and now. 
if God truly is restoring the world, all of it, olam chaba, then we'd have to reject any posture of devout waiting and righteous suffering. Because being indifferent to those things that are not like shalom is to be against or indifferent to God now. If God truly is restoring the world, all of it, olam, chaba, then the surprising plot twist here is that the mess we've created and continue to ignore here on earth is what we get and what we give to our children and our grandchildren. If God truly is restoring the world now, all of it, olam, chaba, then wouldn't cultural and global issues take on a different urgency and priority in our personal and collective decisions? Wouldn't the public policies we support, don't support, or claim to be indifferent to, no matter how flawed their implication, be critical? If God is restoring the world, all of it, olam, chaba, then suddenly issues like the historical and unheard of disparity of wealth, the alarming rise of nationalism masquerading as faith, the facts of climate change, the way the vulnerable, the oppressed, and the refugee are viewed and received or not received, cared for or not cared for, would they not be concrete statements of whether or not we are working with God or against God? No wonder we don't want these implications. No wonder we want another place to which we'll be transported to so that we don't have to deal with the here and now. And some of you are thinking, he's crazy. And that, I would say, is a tactic that those who live in fear use to gaslight possible truth. Possible truth. We've already established that the use of the term gone eden to describe the afterlife suggests that the rabbis of the first century, the context in which the gospels were written, conceived of and understood the afterlife as a return to that garden a restoration of that garden here on earth. We've already established what shalom means to the first century Jew and the disciples of Jesus who were Jewish. We've made a very reasonable case that these ideas were and are endemic to Jewish thinking past and present and these most, most certainly were the understandings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and they wrote the gospels because they were all Jews, three by birth and one by conversion. So sit there with that. Because if it's true, you will have to change everything. And you know in your personal lives, when massive change is required, most of us say, status quo, I'll deal with it. That's the human condition. So let me conclude with this final story. I had a good friend as I, uh, I was teaching at the Bible College up in Canada. Um, he was a young rabbi in the, in the town, uh, a nearby town. We were both the same age. Uh, we were both new to our calls. Um, we both had a, a, a wonderful love of sarcasm, so the friendship had a certain inevitability to it. And I benefited greatly from Eli's deep faith, love of God, and keen insight into the human condition. And even more, Eli helped me better understand Scripture, often when I was working on a New Testament passage and studying about it, Eli would say to me, hey, Todd, you, you know, do you want to hear how a Jew might read that if we thought that this was even worth our time? And I would go, sure. We would meet for lunch, and he would often introduce me as his, um, his Christian friend who doesn't realize he's Jewish yet. <laughs> and I would introduce him as my twin brother while he wore his yarmulke, and that really threw my evangelical friends off. 
I can't even remember the exact passage on which I was reflecting that day. But Eli turned to me at one point and he said, can I ask you something? Why are you Christians so obsessed with who's in and who's out? It makes me wonder how certain you are of the certainty of your faith. I was taken aback by the question. I mean, you ever have those moments where awkward silence because the truth of something just hangs between you? That's what was going on between Eli and I. And he said, Todd, I'm sorry, but we say we have the freedom to ask anything of one another. So I'm asking you, why do you Christian evangelicals, why are you so obsessed with figuring out who's in and who's out? I mean, it really isn't your job. In fact, it feels to me that if you can at least make sure there's one person in hell, then you feel better about your chances for heaven. That's what it feels like to me. And that earnestness of the question hung there and has hung there for 21 years now. The truth is this. Somehow, somewhere along the line, we the church have become more concerned with keeping the wrong people out versus becoming better, becoming more Jesus-like people here and now. That we the church, I'm not just saying Castle Oaks, I'm saying the church we, the church, have become oblivious to the hypocrisy of declaring that God so loved the world that it required the sacrifice of divine proportions, Jesus himself, but we can remain indifferent to the very thing he died for. Do you see the hypocrisy of that? To set this right, it needs a divine sacrifice. Oh, by the way, we really don't care about the here and now. We, the church, have become so, as Oliver Wendell Holmes once said, so heavenly-minded that we are no earthly good. We, the church, have become plant hospice versus gardeners working with God to restore Gan Eden and thus bring in Olam Chaba, the coming world. So, the right question this passage, what does it mean? You know what it means. <laughs>